Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Ah. Today's guest is Mary Lamia, PhD. Oh, yeah. She is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst who works with adults, couples, adolescents, and preteens in her Marin County private practice. She is a professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. Extending psychological knowledge to the public has been her endeavor for many years. Lamia's opinions has been sought in hundreds of television, radio, and print media interviews and discussions. And for nearly a decade, she hosted a weekly call-in show called Kid Talk with Dr. Mary on Radio Disney Stations. Uh, She's the author of so many books, including the one we are going to talk about today entitled Grief Isn't Something to Get Over. Before we get into the episode, remember sharing is caring. So if you enjoy today's episode, share it with others. Go ahead and rate us five stars on iTunes if you haven't done that already. Leave a comment. All those things help us keep going. Remember, you can always reach out to me through social media. I'm at LeoFlowers2000. We have an IG uh, for the podcast also entitled, you know, Before You Kill Yourself. So you can message and reach out through that. And then also emails. I love receiving the emails from you, the listeners. Uh, You can reach out to me at LeoFlowers2000 at Gmail. That's my direct email to reach out, leave your message, leave your comments, and uh, I love to hear from you. And let's keep this party going. With that said, let's jump into the episode. Here is Mary Lamia. The book I just wrote is about on uh, grief is about memories and how they work. And we generally think about memory as a way to organize and inform us for the future. I mean, that's what memory is all about. We wouldn't have a memory if it didn't serve some adaptive function, like preparing us for what we have to do later on. So we draw upon memories automatically, unconsciously, even in order to direct our attention toward the future, direct us in the way we need to go. But when somebody is perseverating on wanting to kill themselves, They're not looking at their lifetime of emotional memories. They're often focused on particular memories that cause them a great deal of shame. And getting out of that shame cycle sometimes needs a jolt, like a hug or a baby crying or someone who cares about you or some way to care about Mm -hmm. yourself. But generally people are focused on particular memories that cause them a great deal of shame. And shame is a big culprit in suicide. Yeah. Can you talk to us about, because I I know for the listeners out there, um, shame and guilt are, you know, two things that people kind of confuse. Can you talk to us about the difference between shame and guilt? And then uh, I know in your book, you talk about uh, the, the four responses that people have to shame. And actually, uh, there's a whole other book I wrote, uh, the, what number was that? That was number five. That was, it's called The Upside of Shame, because shame does have an upside. Though it's a, a book mainly for clinicians to help people deal with shame, because often clinicians ignore the role of shame in people's lives. 
especially when it causes them such great distress to the point of wanting to commit suicide. Shame is shame can feel toxic. The difference between shame and guilt, to answer your question, Leo, has to do with, you know, guilt is generally focused on an action we've taken for which we want to make amends. We want to take it back. It's some action that makes us feel bad about ourselves and we want to undo it in some way. Whereas shame is really about the self. It's about the whole self where we attack ourselves as though the whole self is bad. And that's why it's often implicated in suicide because the toxicity of shame makes one want to hide or avoid. And in fact, shame is known as an emotion that makes us want to hide. It motivates us to hide. So uh, that's why people talk about wanting to save face. Mm -hmm. You know, we hide our face with shame. We don't want others to see us. We don't want others to look at us. And yet there was some research it's sort of interesting that showed that when people feel shame, there's a little bit of them that looks out to observe what the other people are thinking. They want to know, they want to restore, they want to feel better about the relationship. So about the, the four responses to shame, those are fascinating because there are generally, at least according to Donald Nathan, Nathanson, who who figured this out a long time ago, four general responses that people have to, to experiencing shame. Uh, and, and maybe first we ought to think about like what kinds of situations would cause us shame. And generally those have to do with, you know, size, strength, ability, skill, uh, how, how we look, what we do, you know, people who lose all their money in the stock market may commit suicide just because they feel as though they can never restore their sense of self. They lose their sense of self because it's so tied to their money. Um, you know, people uh, feel shame for all kinds of little and big reasons. If you go to a restaurant with your partner, or let's say it's a new romantic interest to make it a little more vulnerable and you're sitting having a nice time talking and interacting and you feel very connected and then all of a sudden somebody walks by and your partner pays a lot of attention to that person and suddenly it seems like you've lost them that is a moment of shame when an interpersonal bond is broken we experience the emotion of shame you know why? Because it makes us retreat into ourselves. We feel as though our self is bad, and that's why this person isn't paying attention to me. And we want also that little bit of shame that makes us want to restore the connection. So even though somebody is about to commit suicide, if it's based on shame, there is that little bit of them that wants to restore connection with the world. So you are absolutely right. So yes. then, okay. so then <laughs> those four responses to shame. Well, so you're sitting with your partner at that restaurant and, and they're paying attention to somebody else. In fact, they're sort of flirting with them. And 
you can withdraw. Withdrawal is a big shame response. We tend to retreat into ourselves, not want to talk to the other person, uh, not want to be around other people, pull the covers over our head. Um, Avoidance. There's all kinds of ways to avoid the toxic feelings of shame we experience. We can have a few extra drinks or uh, drugs, or we can go shopping incessantly and spend a lot of money and then feel more shame. Uh, Usually the avoidance responses to shame make us feel more shame. (laughs) Um, Then there is the third one is attack self. We can attack ourselves and say, well, I'm not good enough for my partner to pay attention to me or um, that person's just not, I'm not interesting enough. We can attack ourselves in all kinds of ways as well. Uh, and, and suicide is an attack self-response to shame. Or we can attack others. Often when people feel shame, they blame anyone and anything on what they feel. Um, I had a patient one time who was at a, a concert and he stood up to dance and and somebody told him to sit down, get out of the way. And he felt intense shame. Well, what did he do? He attacked. You know, he blamed that person. Then he blamed the concert. Then he told me all the people who go to concerts these days suck. I mean, it just went on and on and on, but he couldn't look at himself and recognize at that moment anyway, that he had felt intense shame because he was just into it and kind of narcissistically involved in the whole experience and somebody rained on his parade. So when we get shame rain, um, we generally respond in those four ways to you know withdraw or avoid or attack ourselves or attack others. But what do we really wanna do with shame? What is the best way to deal with shame? The only way to deal with shame is to learn from it because shame is a great teacher. It enables us to look inside ourselves and explore what went on and wonder how we can improve if we could just sit with it, if we could just accept it for the moment and look at ourselves and say, what do I need to learn from this? What what could help me be a a better person or uh, help me succeed? Whatever it is, we need to look at ourselves and learn. And if you can learn from shame, you pretty much overcome it. You you know, it's fascinating because I have a birthday coming up in two days. And my dad passed away maybe 10 years ago. And every year on my birthday, he would emphasize how I've gotten better. He said to sit down and reflect on how I've gotten better in life. And I realized that I have a bit of guilt and shame over the fact that I have gotten better and in some ways have done better than he has in certain areas in his life. And then at the same time, I also feel a bit of guilt or inadequacy over feeling like I should be able to do more with what I've been given. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. But there's the what a what a touching vignette. My goodness, that is so so touching. Um, well, 
I mean, there's so much there. There's, you know, I mean, there are people who would, would say they feel guilty over not making more use of whatever the father was trying to teach them. And and then there's the, the feeling, I mean, even though you've, you've, not to analyze you, but I'm just saying generally when people feel as though they've done better than their, their parents, uh, there's a, a sense of survivor guilt that, you know, we're fraudulent. We, we don't have the right to do better than our parents. One of, one of Freud's most interesting paper of all of his 22 volumes was um, called A Disturbance of Memory on the Acropolis. And it was a letter he wrote to an acquaintance, Ro Roman Roland, and he was talking about a vacation he took with his brother where they didn't expect to be able to go to a certain island and they they ended up being able to go there but uh, to the to see visit the acropolis but when freud saw it he was about to faint and he couldn't understand how unreal it felt and and how dizzy he felt and dis, dysregulated, even though they didn't have those words in those days, um, he was feeling at the time. And he realized that it was a place his father had always wanted to, to visit. And of course, with their poverty, never could. But that here he was surpassing his father. And there's something about uh, the loyalty that we have to our parents that makes us feel very guilty when we surpass them. And part of it is empathy too. But the idea that you should do even more is interesting because in a sense, that was what your father was teaching you every year. He was showing you that you had um, grown I guess, intellectually, emotionally, physically, and that the, the mandate in your head became that you can do even more. But what a beautiful ritual for your father to have done with you. And so then, do you do it for yourself? You know, that's a great question. I am coming to a place this year, I turned 46 this year, where I'm learning how to do it for myself in that um, I didn't grow up with my father around. I just saw him maybe like once or twice a year. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm learning a bunch of stuff from him from my sisters who I also just met. And one of the things I found out is my dad um, didn't want to travel. He never traveled anywhere. He, he stayed in Chicago most of his life after he left Alabama but he loved to hear people's stories of their travel. So now what I realize I want to do is travel and share with my father the experiences uh, from that. And even as I'm talking about it, like I, I want to cry, but uh, I. That's so beautiful though. But his ritual with you was when he saw you that once or twice a year was to talk about the ways in which you've grown. Yes. And I mean, that must have touched him in some way, too, to see you every so often and, and all of a sudden to see how different you were. 
Yeah, it's almost like uh, you know when they, when you measure the height of the kid, and every year you get to see how much taller they've gotten, and um, you know it's a it's a and, but you know for him it wasn't just about the physical growth; it was about the spiritual, emotional, experiential, and the mental growth. You know, so uh, I would um, be so tempted to tell you to write, and I'm going to tell you to write a letter to him every year on your birthday. So I do that also. And what I've noticed, you know, because, you know, you're, you know, I, I read your book on grief and it is very powerful and it brought up a lot of, uh, of emotions and thoughts and ideas for me. But I noticed that my letters to my father are always in three parts. The first paragraph is usually anger, frustration, and rage. I'm just so upset with them. And then the second part is usually hurt and disappointment and sadness. And then the third part is like this joy and gratitude and uh, uh, it's almost like peace and clarity, like where, where it all comes together. And every year the letter always follows, you know, it's not intentional. I just started noticing that as a pattern. And uh, it's so cathartic for me. And, you know, I put it in an um, envelope. And I, you know, I mail it, so to speak, and uh, and, and it and it really. But this year, I'm going to include, um, you know, my travels from the year, and um, and I have two continents to go, so uh, I'm excited to take them with me uh, for those trips. That that's interesting because um, there there is a shame in not being able to see a parent when you're a little kid and and you kind of you kind of go over a lot of the shame responses in your letter in your your sections which is fascinating and then and then you do the learning part and the learning part is probably the the deepest attachment to your dad where did you grow up chicago Wow. My favorite city. You know, I've I've never heard anyone say a bad thing about Chicago. People love that. Like, I live in San Diego. I've heard mixed reviews. L.A., divisive. But Chicago has been loved across the board. It's the lake. Ah. The water. (laughs) The lake is so beautiful. We always want to get back to the water. Yes, and I've... I've grown up on the West Coast my whole life. I've grown up in this I've, and lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, I mean, we have the ocean, but the ocean is not that lake. I mean, the lake is just, just so wonderful to be in, in my mind anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful to be in. It's beautiful to see. It's, you know, we have the lakefront where you can walk along it. It's It's very soothing. I mean, you know, when we talk about uh, you know, grieving, I, I also realized like the importance of being outside, seeing nature, breathing in fresh air, taking in those fractals. Um, and it's something that, you know, would naturally happen if we weren't so industrialized. You know, if we didn't have Netflix and, uh, you know, nice homes and, you know, four walls, uh, which I, I think in some ways maybe would even slow down our grieving process. 
Well, what what's hard is, you know, when when we don't see a parent or a loved one and are are deprived of that contact or continuous contact, physical contact, it's it's hard enough to to feel cheated, but when they die, you really feel cheated. And we feel cheated anyway when a parent dies when we're young. I mean, as I say in my book, my my mother died when I was 11 and my father when I was 21. So, I mean, I don't think I consciously think I I was cheated because I brought them with me as I grew. And so it felt as though they were always with me and the continuing bonds we have with people keep them with us. You know, even though you saw your father a couple of times a year, you have a continuing bond with him. Just your birthday ritual alone is such a strong, strong bond of keeping somebody with us. And that's one of the ways we reconcile our memories of somebody when they were alive with our acceptance of them being dead is if we have a continuing bond, it reconciles that discrepancy between them being alive and them being gone because our memory can't quite put it together. You know, that people have the hardest time right after somebody dies with um, memory issues because they can't reconcile the fact that all their memories tell them this person is here, but the present tells them the person is gone. And the brain has just happens to have a hard time putting that together. So if we continue a bond with them in some way, in some form, some ritual, some trinket, anything, some memories we replay, that that helps us sort of put those two together. Funny, the symptoms people have when somebody dies, you know, losing things. Almost everybody I talk to tells me, you know, the the week after somebody dies, they keep losing things or they can't find what's right in front of them. That even happened to me after my my husband died. I was writing the, uh, uh, reviewing the edits from the publisher for the book, the final edits. And that week, my husband had a stroke and then died. And uh, I mean, that was strange. And I kept I kept having those symptoms of where did I put this thing or or where did I write this or where are my keys or it's funny, we're missing somebody and our brain knows that we're missing something. It's just trying to help us. Yeah, I love how you go into using our senses to connect with uh, you know, moments that we've lost. And, and one of the, the, you know, I've heard, you know, taste, touch, smell, hear, feel. I've heard about those things. But it was interesting when you talked about taste in that you mentioned how if we have, if we're eating the same thing every day for 30 days, on the 30th day, we're not going to notice it the way we did on the first day. And... <laughs> And then you yes. tied it into the same thing when we've lost someone. You know, you, uh, you, you lost your husband of 44 years and my dad. And when we're with someone for every day and then 
they pass, we are beat ourselves up over not cherishing them in the way that we should, or we thought we should have right before they passed. But, you know, the, the taste buds wax and wane in our experiences with people the same way they would with food. And I would imagine people feel guilt over that. Can you, can you speak more to that? Oh, sure. They sure do. Like I should have done this. Or I should have spent more time with her or I should have told him that I loved him more often or whatever it is we do. But yes, that is so true. Just like with our senses, how we become habituated to a certain taste or a certain smell, we become used to people. And so uh, we, we don't always appreciate the little parts of their behavior that we may have appreciated when they were new to us. One theorist, um, Sylvan Tompkins, calls it the valley of perceptual skill, meaning, meaning that, you know, we, we sort of go into a valley in terms of our perceptions when we constantly experience them. And that's true of people. People often have a, a question about how do you make love and excitement last in a relationship? because people get used to each other and then and then what do you do so how do you keep how do you keep it going well there are ways to keep it going i mean when you think about our perceptions our senses and how we can become habituated to something the one thing you want in a relationship is novelty whatever that novelty happens to be you know to do something different to be someone different, to be another part of who you are so that your partner isn't experiencing the same you over and over and over again. I mean, I may love my coffee every morning, even though I've had it every morning, <laughs> but it was a little bit different, I sure would notice. Um, and the other is is to, to you know, maintain the, the intimacy to to talk to one another, to share. Um, but I think the biggest one in terms of our emotional life that we want in a relationship is interest and novelty. So how could you become more interesting? How could they be more interesting? And how could you have more novelty in your experiences with each other? My husband and I, in the first 30 years of our marriage, we're married almost, almost 44 years, um, used to go on novel hikes together uh, in, in various places because he, he was a private pilot and he, we would fly to these remote, crazy, teeny little airstrips and hike around. It was probably dangerous, some of the things we did, but um, it was novel and we shared it. So the shared experiences that was, that was important in our, in our marriage, but I think it's important in, in any relationship. Yeah. Even with yourself, you know, that, that space after, after loss, I would imagine, you know, I've, I've done that with breakups because sometimes, you know, when we think of loss, you know, I think most people typically think of uh, someone dying, but as you talk about in your book, there's so many different forms of loss, like through dementia, your pet dying, mental illness, 
job loss, breakup, divorce, things like that. Those are all forms of of loss. You are such a careful reader. It just blows my mind. I want you as my graduate student. <laughs> and and I I realize that um you know at, when after breakups like I have to take myself out on dates so to speak like reconnect with myself and see what I like and have like you said novel experiences and see what am I interested in because you do get caught up in what are we interested in? What do we want to watch? Where do we yes. want to go? And then you forget like what you're into. So, you know, it's also an opportunity to learn about yourself and where you are now versus who you were in the uh, relationship. Because you, you brought oh, up- Oh, like, I think that's so important. Yes. Uh, one of the things that you, you mentioned, and, and I know I'm going on long, but- um, you talk about sometimes we're grieving the the person who we were in the relationship and our ability to express ourselves uh, in that relationship. Can you say more to that? Because I thought that was a very interesting concept. So often people uh, identify with being a couple. And so they, they sort of merge in a way. So without the partner, it feels like half of you is gone. It really does. And that is that is why, I mean, when you say in a breakup to go out and connect with yourself on a date with yourself and reconnect with who you were beforehand, I think it's really important that we are who we are independent of another person always and so often people get lost in their relationship and they don't know who they are anymore and i mean one of the things i feel very fortunate uh to have in my life is that i've always had such an independent existence independent of my husband uh so that when he died i wasn't completely lost because we had our own separate careers and lives and things we did and interests. And I can't imagine what it would be like. Well, I can't imagine what it would be like because I've seen plenty of those people who where where somebody is is just completely merged with the other so that they don't know where their self begins and ends. And your identity becomes intertwined with another person. Now there are cases of soulmates where people do feel that intense closeness, but I think, and, and I think they experience a lot, you experience a lot of grief when a soulmate dies. However, I mean, soulmates could have independent existences and that's important in my mind. The other thing, the other thing you made me think of you make me think of so many things. I could talk to you forever. Um, is after a breakup, why do people say, well, I need to be by myself for a while before I get into another relationship? And that's just not true. It's just not true. One of the ways we heal is, is through re-engaging with a person. And I mean, you may have to re-engage 
with a lot of people before you find what you want. But there's, in my mind at least, really no such thing as a rebound relationship. At least the, the little bit of research on the subject shows that when you lose somebody you love in a breakup, that it's, it's healthy to, to reestablish a bond with somebody else. Now, if you're thinking about your lost partner the whole time, this person is probably not the person you should be with. However, when you meet somebody new, I mean, just the comparison, the contrast gives you an idea of, well, did you really have what you thought you wanted anyway? And sometimes people wait a long, long time before they get involved with somebody else because of that memory issue. We just can't reconcile that somebody was here and we thought we were in love and we thought they were in love with us. And all of a sudden they're gone. And so it's this effort to try to get them back in one's mind. As long as you're not re-engaging in the world and in somebody else, you're, you're keeping that memory alive. Wow, that's such a powerful question. Did you really have what you thought you really wanted anyway in that relationship? Because you're right, we tend to idealize or even lionize the, the person that we were with and we forget about all the ways in which our needs weren't met in that relationship and the challenges and the struggles. Um, and we just want to highlight the best parts. Absolutely. And when when there's a breakup, when somebody breaks up with us, or if a partner dies, uh, when a loved one dies, we almost always tend to idealize them and and wish we had gotten more of that ideal stuff from them. And, and why is that? I try to explain in the book why that happens. Um, and it can happen to extreme, extreme degree, degrees too. I had one uh, patient who's, who had went through a horrific divorce and she hated her ex-husband, but as soon as he got sick and was about to die, all of a sudden she thought of all the good things. And then when he died, she went to his memorial and, and said prayers for him, feeling so, so terrible. And um, so why do people do that? Or, or when, when people, when somebody breaks up with you, people can say, Oh, they were so perfect. They were so good. What could I have done to have made them stay? It must be my fault. And I could have done this and I could have done that. Well, that's just because we idealize when we when we experience a loss. So when somebody is alive or somebody is with us as a partner, let's say, um, we have to live the everyday. And so we could consider all of the bad things about them that we don't like and wish were different. But as soon as they're gone, we don't have to deal with anything bad because they're gone. So what comes flooding in are all the good things that we miss. And that's a problem because it makes us hurt even more. There's a lot of people who um, become very suicidal and depressed from breakups and loss where that's happening. 
where the loved one becomes ideal and the person who's left experiences this intense shame and self-loathing as though they were not good enough. And so there's all the responses to shame, the avoidance, you see alcoholism, drug addiction, withdrawal, um, attacking the self. You see all kinds of things with that. Yeah, you know, I was at the pharmacist yesterday to pick up uh, some meds, and uh, I just finished his book on Avicii. He was a, D, a global DJ, and uh, Avicii had pancreatitis. He had some other health issues, and uh, I was wondering, I asked my pharmacist what the role of pancreatitis would be in uh, serotonin release, because that's like our, our one of our feel-good drugs and, and mood-stabilizing drugs. And we get into it, and then the pharmacist begins to tell me that her sister at the age of 18 ended her life because, and this, I'm standing in line in, in like a, a grocery store and she's telling me this. And there's like a lady was standing behind me waiting in line. And she said, yeah, my, my sister at the age of 18 ended her life because she saw her boyfriend have an asthma attack and drop dead right in front of her. And her parents were there. Uh, and they were both in the medical field. Her mom was a nurse. Dad was a, a doctor. And neither one could save them, you know, because at the time they didn't have uh, the anti-inflammatories. They just had the albuterol. They just had steroids. So there was nothing medically that really could be done. He was a big barrel chested. And so two months after she saw her boyfriend die from the asthma attack, she ended her life. And... That's why, you know, it's another reason why I was, I mean, you know, weirdly to say excited to talk to you because, you know, here's a, a girl who's 18 years old. Emotions are just so strong and intense and powerful. A bunch of chemicals flooding your system from dopamine, oxygen, you know, all these different things. And so attached to her boyfriend that, you know, she felt like that was uh, the response to it. So, you know, when we're talking about shame and guilt and how that can lead to a person ending their life, and, and there may have been other factors, you know, I, I didn't stand in line that long, but. <laughs> I guess that was a way to go with him. Right, right. If but, you believe that, I mean, it would be. But, and but that's why, you know, I really love your book because you, you talk about all these other ways in which we can experience, uh, you know, the people that we've loved and cherished and, you know, through scent and, you know, sleeping with something that smells like them, but uh, I'll let you continue. Oh, yes. That was, that was sort of interesting that people, um, that research that where people sleep better when they have the scent of a loved one next to them. So make sure your partner wears a t-shirt to bed for a few nights. If she's gone, you can always sleep with the t-shirt. And, you know, what I also enjoy about your book, there's a, a part in there where you talk about the narrative self. And, and I think this is important for dealing with grief in that uh, a lot of times we don't realize the way that we deal with grief has to do with our narrative self. And you define it as being a combination of our, you know, our social cultural experiences, our gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, all those different things. Because... I think that if people could 
take a moment to kind of see how each one of those handles grief, it would make, I, I would imagine you'd feel less alone in what you're experiencing. Cause I, I would imagine there's also this intense feeling like I'm the only one who feels this. No one can understand me, especially when you're 18 and young. So can you talk to us about the narrative self and the power of that of, uh, in helping us deal with grief? Yeah, a lot of that has to do with autobiographical memory and 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 just how we describe ourselves and uh, and it's also linked to self-defining memories. The memories we have uh, we we hold close that that define us. So the stories we tell about ourselves are all linked to, like as you said, you know, to to culture and. What we've experienced is all of what we've experienced. And uh, if we take a look at who we are, according to us, there's so many pieces of that. And you're right. We're not just one little thing. You know, we could expand it and say, well, you know, I'm a I'm a sister. I'm a I'm a cousin. I'm a Catholic. I'm a, you know. Italian American, I'm all kinds of things. So how we put that all together, you know, how we define ourselves is very important. And the the narrative we give about who we are. Though, again, so many people lose that when they, they, um, join with somebody and become that person it's sort of a we we often think about it too it's like it's like borrowed pride um we define ourselves in terms of the other rather than in terms of ourselves so um if you're married to somebody you think is important then you're important or if you're married to somebody who's a great poet, then somehow you get the benefit of that. Well, they leave, and then who are you? Um, it used to be uh, before women entered the workforce, they often define themselves in terms of what their husband did. And, and who they were was defined as as sort of uh, the whole with their husband rather than independently. Wow, that's so powerful. Yeah, yeah, I've, I was reading about the Great Depression and, you know, the, the, looking at the people who ended their lives during that, you know, a lot of it was oh. their identity was tied to their job, their position, their title, you know, their, you know, uh, you know, they even talk about how like, you know, um, during the football season, if their team loses, you know, the, 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 like the, the increase in depressive uh, symptoms go up, you know, is tied to the, you know, the, the team's record. Um, and, yes. and so, you know, we over identify with so many external things. It's it's interesting. You know, you and also, we also uh, there is also some uh, statistic on domestic violence during the Super Bowl. Oh, well, yeah, maybe that's because so many people are, are intoxicated. I don't know. Uh, what that's all about. Yeah, it that would be it's, interesting it's to find out if it was for the losing team. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it, 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 I, I wonder if it's also one is alcohol, two is like how close the game is, <laughs> because I would imagine that would make it, you know, feelings more intense uh, versus like a 50 to zero at halftime or something like that. Um, on page, you know, 79, you talk about um, or not 79, 83, you talk about self triggering trauma. And that stood out to me because I have, uh, you know, a few friends who have experienced some traumatic experiences and they watch TV shows that that are just as that kind of help them relive it. You know, like they'll watch like Law and Order SVU. And I'm like, why would you watch this if you've been through that? Can you talk to us about why we uh, expose ourselves to these self-triggering traumas and it's almost masochistic, isn't it? Um, yeah, in one point of part of the book, around right, right around there, I was writing about um, my uh, stepmother. Um, this woman my father married after my mother died, who he, I know he didn't love. And I felt bad for her, but she was um, pretty disturbed and uh, very, very abusive. And as I was writing it, I was thinking, do I really want to bring up these memories? <laughs> I don't want to bring up these memories. And it, it took all I had to write those few paragraphs uh, that had to do with her and had to do with her after my father died and, and when I saw her once, one more time. And that was self-triggering. That's a good example of self-triggering. Or just as you say, to to watch a movie or a television program that relates to your trauma is asking for trouble. Um, contrary to popular belief, we do not solve or process our traumas by reliving them, even by going to a therapist and recounting them over and over and over again. The more you recount a trauma, the more ingrained it is in your memory. It's like you're wearing this neural pathway down so that it has easy access to your consciousness. And why would you want to do that? You don't want to remember, you want to forget. So the current research is saying that reliving trauma, recounting it, describing it over and over again, only stirs up the emotional brain. It doesn't calm it down. It recreates the trauma. So how do you forget? Well, first of all, you just don't, you don't watch that movie or that television program. You don't do things that will activate those memories because memory is there to protect us. So if you activate a memory, it'll come in, something will come into consciousness you know, memories connected to cognitions and emotions, sensory awareness. So all of that comes into your, your mind. And you don't want it there. It's better to do something else. It's actually better to forget. We can't process trauma by reliving it. It doesn't work. Just the brain doesn't work that way. I love that. Yeah, because, you know, I, I love how in uh, like it's like page like 135 ish where you, you talk about healthier ways for us to cope with trauma and deal with grief. 
You talk about, you know, the, the importance of breathing, seeking social support. Um, now, you do discuss sharing autobiographical stories with friends. Can you, can you talk to us about how that would be different than the uh, remembering or you in know, terms of in terms of connecting? So, I mean, you could you could I could share a story about um, my mother or my husband or my father or about people I've loved to have died. And it doesn't mean it's going to activate the trauma again, just because I'm sharing that story, but I'm sharing a story to connect with somebody else. And that is it. That is its purpose is to connect with somebody else. So it's relational in a way. Um, I mean, that's what we do when we, when we form a relationship with somebody else, don't we, we recount all kinds of autobiographical memories to share with the other person. So they get a sense of who we are, or where we came from, or the experience we have, you know, if I, if I, but if I recount the story of finding my husband slumped over, you know, with a stroke, well, no, that doesn't make me feel very good. You know, that brings up that memory. I had to make a conscious effort not to think about that one so much. And I just thought about it right now and it doesn't make me feel good. So, but I could recount a funny story about him, um, you know, or, or um, a touching story. But um, yeah, that's, that's different. Well, it sounds like that 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 ties into uh, as you mentioned in the book Natsukashi. I, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's on page seventy-seven, where you talk about this nostalgic longing, including you know joy and gratitude for yes, the past the rather than the desire. And I could see like that type of using that type of autobiographical uh, sharing would help you connect yes. with the past. Yes. Um, and uh, bringing in other cultures is sometimes very interesting to see how they look at, at grief or longing or loss or um, uh, just like the, uh, I think I mentioned the Portuguese um, Sodada, I think it's called, where. Oh, Sodade. Yes. Yep of an absence. Yeah. Where you're kind of longing for the absence of the person. Or lo- where there, yes. Where their absence is, is so prominent uh, that they are present in a sense. It's just, um, you know, cultures have, have different ways of, of seeing things and we could look at our own culture. We could look at other people's culture, but not, Nobody really, um, I mean, in terms of memory, we experience grief similarly. But in terms of our whole picture of ourselves, we we are very different. Yeah. One thing I oh, go ahead. one thing I didn't bring up in the in the book uh, because it came after it was finally submitted, and I added my the loss of my husband to it. Um. It was funny that you mentioned uh, pancreatitis or the pancreas um, because a few, few months after my husband died, once the book was in, 
my older son was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And fortunately, it was caught early and the tumor was contained and he's still going through chemotherapy and he's already had surgery. But that was a huge blow. And just to mention that the possibility of losing a child or losing a child, just like the, you know, that young person, the pharmacist, you know, was that her sister? Right, correct. Um, is is just the worst. Is really the worst. And those people, I I really feel for those people who lose a child. And the ones I've seen in treatment, you just, that's something, if grief isn't something to get over, losing a child is really something you'll never get over. And There's no it, way to make meaning from it. Mm. Yeah, you know, towards the end of the book, around uh, 173, you talk about optimism versus hope. And I never really thought about the difference between the two, but, you know, you share how optimism is a more general idea and involves more certainty and hope is more specific and deals with uncertainty. Um, where do you find your hope and optimism? Oh, I think uh, hope tends to be more spiritual. And I think having a spiritual sense is is very useful. And I think a, a, a spiritual sense, however you want to define it, you know, even the idea that we're all connected in some way. We're all, we're all one in some way, and we're, yet we're all so independent. Is, is for me a, a way of, of being optimistic or of feeling hope, of, of feeling just connected with others. We're connected to nature, we're connected to everything. You know, it's funny how um, the publisher sent me a, a book cover and has a hummingbird on it. And one of the one of the things, I mean, I love hummingbirds. And we have a, a lot of hummingbirds in a tree at my house. And my husband used to love hummingbirds and they'd make little nests and little teeny hummingbirds would come out. And I thought, how, what a coincidence of all things. You know, a hummingbird on the cover. I couldn't have picked anything more perfect. And I would like to think it's because we're all connected, but it's unlikely. Um, but you know what? If, if I have to live my life imagining something more optimistic like that, I'd rather live that way than to think, you know, otherwise. Is there anything from the book that we haven't discussed or that from your experiences since you've written the book on grief that uh, you like to share with the listeners? I think you pretty much covered it. You are a careful reader. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. I think I'll just put you in my back pocket and keep you around and wow. And I'll say, Leo, what does this book say? And you could just spit it out. <laughs> Uh, thank last, you so thank much. you. Where can people find you, reach out to you, learn more about you, get the book? On my website, it's uh, 
marylamia.com, M-A-R-Y-L-A-M-I-A.com. The book is on Amazon for pre-order, as well as my other ones for both children and adults. All right. So we'll release this uh, when when the book is going to get released. Um, and then last question, I ask this of all my guests, because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Mary? There are many ways to learn from shame. So take a look at yourself before you do it and see what you could learn and see how you can grow. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Are you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS? Or if you're in Budapest, Ukraine, Canada, wherever you are in the world, there are international suicide hotline phone numbers for you to reach out. You can call, you can text, you can chat. There are groups, there are free services, there are services that help you get things for free. Um, they're all linked in every single one of the show notes. Uh, and you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you, Leo.